Science is the great antidote to the poison of enthusiasm and superstition. Hi, I'm Juliette Selgren, and this is my podcast, The Great Antidote, named for Adam Smith, brought to you by Liberty Fund. To learn more, visit www.adamsmithworks.org. Welcome back. We often talk about presidents and important political figures of history on this podcast, such as Thomas Jefferson or James Madison or Frederick Douglass. But what about those who fall between the cracks? I mean, obviously, some of them do because they're not that significant in the grand scheme of things. But we've had so many presidents and some of them were not insignificant, such as Grover Cleveland. You might be wondering what the heck I'm talking about, but today, on February 24th, 2023, I'm delighted to welcome Troy Senek to talk to us about this. He's the author of A Man of Iron, The Turbulent Life and Improbable Presidency of Grover Cleveland. He was also a White House speechwriter and is the co-founder of Kite and Key Media. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So, before we jump into the man Grover Cleveland... What is the most important thing that people my age or in my generation should know that we don't? You know, the piece of advice that always stands out to me as being very good for everybody, but especially for young people sort of planning their lives, planning their careers, is the axiom that Dwight Eisenhower made famous, which is that planning is everything and the plan is nothing, by which he meant that, you know, the intellectual discipline that it takes to plan, to think about contingency, to think about the future is so, so helpful in giving you kind of a a dexterity to manage anything that life throws at you. But simultaneously, the specific plans you make will almost never play out the ways that you think they're going to. And I think that's really helpful for, for young people in particular as you're dealing with the surprises or the disappointments that come with navigating the job market or navigating relationships or all the things that accompany those sort of coming of age years. I think if you can strike that balance that Eisenhower was suggesting, then you end up in a place where you're pretty resilient because you're you're always sort of girded for whatever's going to come your way. It's a good piece of advice. I feel like this is what I see. Like you 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 prepare for the test or you apply to this thing and then you know the plan the plan doesn't work but it's it's even the idea of planning something helps you pivot later when the plan goes awry as it will or maybe it won't but it's a good piece of advice <laughs> oh god I'm, I'm glad you liked it i mean it does it does create a kind of strength in so far as um if you think about the world that way, then every failure, um, or not even failure, but every surprise even, kind of becomes something that energizes you because it's it's just the, what can I pivot to? What's next after this? Instead of sort of living with the sinking feeling around a disappointment, it, it just, it helps you learn to slough things off and to keep going. So let's jump into Grover Cleveland. Um, I'm embarrassed to say that before reading the book, I knew absolutely nothing about the man who was the first Democrat elected to the presidency after the Civil War and the last elected Democrat until 1912. 
Guys, that's a long time. Um, he also remains the only president to have served two non-consecutive terms. He was our 22nd and our 24th president. And we're going to get into that. But I came out of reading this really shocked as to why he's largely forgotten. So why don't we know who he is? And maybe even more importantly, why did you think it was so important? Why did you write a book about a president that we often forget? Yeah, it's strange that we don't know who he is. As I say in the book, there are only 14 presidents out of the 45 that we've had, so less than a third, who've done a full eight years in office. And if we were to go down that roster, they would all pretty much be the presidents that we think of as household names, with the single exception of Grover Cleveland, who's even more distinctive in the way he does these eight years, because as you say, it's it's two non-consecutive terms. The reasons, there are a few that I think we've forgotten about him. One, which will become readily apparent to anybody who is navigating my book, is that because of the era in which he's president, which is the first terms from 1885 to 1889, and the second one's from 1893 to 1897, uh, a lot of the issues that he's dealing with are issues that seem entirely foreign to us. It's, it's a weird quirk of American history that the Gilded Age closer though it is to us than the Revolutionary Era or the Civil War Era, is much less intelligible just because the issues at play – I mean, Cleveland's dealing with things like military pensions and the gold standard and you know annexation of Hawaii. They're just things that we don't really have much of an analog for today. That's, that's one reason. Uh, another reason is I don't think he fits very cleanly in our conception of American politics because this is a guy who for modern audiences is going to be most appealing to uh, libertarian types or sort of limited government conservative types. But he's a Democrat. He's sort of the last of the Jeffersonian classical liberal Democrats. As you mentioned, the next Democrat after him is until 1912, and that's Woodrow Wilson who takes the party in a, a very different direction. That's really when progressivism starts to take over within the Democratic Party, and sort of implicit in that is a renunciation of what Grover Cleveland's species of, of Democrat looked like. And then I think the other factor is that Cleveland was, was quite a modest man, and he did not leave much of a record. Um, he never wrote a memoir. He was approached about it in his post-presidency and gave some thought to it, but in the end didn't do it. The, we have a collection of sort of lectures he gave in his post-presidency, but – and I say this as a – obviously to some degree a Cleveland admirer. They're, they're not very good. I mean they're very <laughs> – they're a very sort of lawyerly look at a couple of the policy controversies from his presidency, three or four of the policy controversies. But he's not really taking you behind closed doors. He's not really opening up to you how the decision-making happened. So he's a little inaccessible to us partially because he didn't make himself accessible. Uh, even in his post-presidency. And just briefly, because I'm, I'm rambling on, but I, I do think it's important probably to set up the rest of our conversation with the answer to the second question that you asked, which is why did I think it was important? And the reason I thought it was important is because Cleveland, even if you don't agree with him ideologically, I think Cleveland's an interesting figure in that in a lot of ways, he matches up with what I think the average American's idealized conception of a president is, and they wouldn't know that because they don't hear his name very often, by which I mean this is a man of very modest means who has this rapid rise through American politics almost entirely based on his reputation for integrity. 
and his reputation for putting the needs of the, the public as a whole over the needs of political parties or special interest groups and for standing on principle, even when it came at a real political cost to him. So especially because this is a pretty cynical moment in American politics, I, I thought it was important for people to understand that we had had a figure like this in the past and also that part of the genius of the American system is that it can yield up figures like this precisely in the moments where it feels like um, they're the furthest people from the seat of power. So what was so improbable in the professional trajectory of Grover Cleveland? When I think about the fact that we didn't have much for, on him as to like papers and an autobiography and all of that stuff, mm-hmm. it kind of is a, to me, I see it as fitting with the rest of his character, kind of this inconspicuous kind of guy who you, who doesn't see, who, he doesn't necessarily stand out. So how did he, how did he become president? Yeah, you are totally right about that. In fact, the first full chapter of my book, not the introduction, but where the narrative starts, is called He Did Not Shine. And that is a quote from his sister <laughs> describing him as a student. So yeah, he was he was fine. Like everybody liked him, but no, nobody saw it. There was never a sense that this was Destiny's child, that this was a guy who was uh, inevitably going to be uh, hoisted up to the highest levels of power. So he comes from a very modest background. Uh, he's born in Northern New Jersey, the fifth of nine children. His father is a Presbyterian minister. And um, the family lives very, very modestly. I mean, they have a um, an annual income for a family of 11. They have a, uh, an annual income that in today's dollars is a, a little over $20,000 a year. I mean, they have there are, are things like a parsonage provided for by the church, which ameliorates that sum. But it's a pretty modest existence. And Cleveland spends his childhood mostly moving around. They leave New Jersey when he's three and mostly moving around upstate New York as his father is taking various jobs in the ministry. His father dies by the time that Cleveland is 16. And as a result, uh, Cleveland is never able to go to college. And he ends up in his 20s in Buffalo, where he has some family and works his way up in the law, reading law. This is before there were really widespread law schools. So you essentially uh, apprenticed what they called reading law. And he is uh, really at no point up until pretty close to the time he's president of the United States, a widely known figure. I always think the most interesting place to locate Grover Cleveland is in the year uh, 1881, which is the year that he would have turned 44 years old. And if you were to find him in 1881, what you would find is an overweight, balding, uh, workaholic lawyer in Buffalo, New York, who was known in the community, sort of respected as a as an upstanding citizen. He had had one political office about a decade prior. He had been the sheriff of Erie County, New York, where Buffalo is, had a reputation for integrity, but uh, not a leading citizen of Buffalo by any stretch of the imagination. And the reason that any of this is relevant is because we're describing somebody who is three years away from becoming president of the United States. Uh, Cleveland says when he's being sworn in as president the first time in 1885, that the thought he can't get out of his mind 
is that James Garfield, who was being sworn in for the same job four years prior, would not have known his name, would not have known who he was, because he is elected mayor of Buffalo in 1881, then governor of New York in 1882, and then president of the United States in 1884. And how does this happen? Well, he has this reputation for incorruptibility and for being one of the few politicians then or frankly now who really deserves the title of a public servant. You know, he's he's really doing this job for the greater public. There's not a lot of self-interest involved in it. And he really sees his job in all three of these uh, stations, his role as an executive, as protecting the taxpayers, protecting the everyday citizens from the sort of depredations of, of government. And this is a moment, you know, when you come out of the Civil War, the Republican Party is dominant throughout American politics, especially at the federal level. The Democrats still sort of have the stink of the Confederacy on them. And as a result, they get what I call in the book the political equivalent of gout. You know, they just have things too good for too long. And as a result, there's a lot of corruption and a lot of self-dealing, a lot of sort of crooked relationships with business interests. And Cleveland, as he is sort of climbing the political ladder, becomes defined as a guy who will not put up with any of this, not only from Republicans, but from his fellow Democrats, which is really important as a political matter, because it allows him consistently to get these crossover votes from Republicans who are kind of sick of the Republican status quo, but don't feel like they're giving up on their first principles to cross over and, and vote for a guy like Grover Cleveland. And that's really what allows him to sort of shoot the gap in this era and be the only Democrat uh, to win the presidency is because of the sense that this is a guy who is sort of above party politics. And this is a guy who's there to sort of clean Washington up. So, I mean, I guess I kind of want to like sidetrack from the main uh, storyline, maybe is not the right word for that, for a minute to ask about what it was like and to kind of paint this picture of what it was like for him as the first Democrat since Andrew Johnson, the Reconstruction president who took over for Lincoln after he was assassinated and all of that. That must have been so weird in a myriad of ways. How did he deal with that? And how did his principles work in his favor, work against him, all of that? Well, you know, I think I, they helped him in uh, a number of respects, one of which is, as you correctly point out, Johnson was the last Democrat before that. But of course, Johnson was was never elected. He, is, he assumes office when Lincoln is assassinated. So the last elected Democrat was James Buchanan right before the Civil War. And James Buchanan and Andrew Johnson are two American presidents who really don't hold up well under any scrutiny, but particularly do not hold up well uh, under scrutiny on race. I mean, Buchanan comes in and in his inaugural address essentially pre-endorses uh, the Supreme Court's decision in the Dred Scott case. And Johnson is a notorious racist uh, during his time in office and really throughout his life. And so you can imagine, right, the first Democrat elected president after the Civil War, there is real anxiety attached to this notion, particularly in the South, particularly amongst free blacks in the South, newly recently freed blacks, I should say, in the South. And there are rumors which you know only seem incredible to us now because we know the way the story played out. But you can understand why it would have terrified people at the time. Rumors that Democratic president is coming back in the White House, you all are headed back for slavery. 
And Cleveland carves out a section of his inaugural address to explicitly endorse the idea that America is never going back on that front, that black citizenship is sort of an immutable fact of American life. And it's it's something of an irony insofar as you wouldn't look at Cleveland's presidency and say that he was a great civil rights leader by any stretch of the imagination, because particularly when he's running the second time, Republicans in the early 1890s are pushing for uh, federal intervention in state elections, particularly in the South, to ensure the voting rights of, of blacks in the region. And Cleveland is opposed to this, not on racial grounds, but because Cleveland is such a thoroughgoing constitutionalist that he just can't get his head around this idea that the federal government could step into what constitutionally to him is clearly the state's role. So it's not that he has a great record on the sort of the major policy decisions around civil rights, but there is this thread that runs through his personal life. Remember, he's a Northern Democrat, which is a big cultural contrast to the Southern Democrats that are really driving this kind of stuff in that he's even though he wouldn't meet a 2023 standard of being a, a racial egalitarian, he's in many ways sort of a creature of his times, but he's a very broadly tolerant man. And so just to give you one sort of minor example of this, but one that should probably matter to us because it mattered to the Democratic Party of his day, that Cleveland would have Frederick Douglass to the White House on a fairly regular basis. And Douglass, of course, was a Republican, and Douglass at the time – was married to a white woman. This scandalized sort of the Southern Democratic establishment. They hated that Grover Cleveland did this. And Douglas writes in uh, one of his autobiographies, I think there's a couple, as I recall, that um, he Cleveland earned this very deep respect from him because Cleveland never flinched for a moment over the criticism that he was getting from his party over this because Cleveland just thought it was the it was the right thing to do. And and you just see this throughout his life, both in his personal life and his political life and in places like this where the two were kind of woven together, that he was just willing to stick his chin out uh, when it created political disadvantages for him. And he, and he didn't really count them for anything. He didn't have a deep anxiety about this. The more you know, you read all these examples in my book, the more you realize this is just the way that he was he was built. The criticism didn't mean anything to him. So, I mean, he seems kind of like this, uh, I don't want to say ideal, because we're going to get into that, but he he's a very principled and not like, unca- he, he's unfazed in, in the face of sticking with his principles versus people who oppose him. And I mean, can you tell us how that got him in trouble because there's no way in the political sphere that that always goes well. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And that's one of the points, one of the sort of moral complications of of my book. And one of the things that I wanted to confront people with is that you have to entertain these two things side by side. One of which is there is this president that kind of matches our abstract ideals of what a lot of us anyway want out of a president. And also those ideals uh, in many ways, make it very hard for him to do his job, and in some cases, make him less effective at his job. So, the other side of this coin, because he was so confident in his ideals, uh, so confident in his convictions, he could be stubborn 
um, he could be self-righteous. And uh, oftentimes he couldn't make the trade-offs that are sort of inherent to democratic politics. I mean, democratic politics is messy. You are always giving a little to get a little. You are always giving up on something today because there's a slightly more important goal down the line. And it's kind of that constant sort of reshuffling of priorities and trying to weigh things in the balance. So to give you but one example of this, which kind of really shows you how the, the principles play out in practice to both his political benefit and his detriment. Uh, one of these kind of exotic issues seems exotic to us now that was not at all exotic in that day is Cleveland spent a lot of time thinking about tariffs. And up until like the last five years, we didn't really think about tariffs that much in American politics. But even now, as we think about them more, they are nowhere near as important to us as they were in the late 19th century. And the explanation for this is actually pretty clear once you understand the context of the times, which was that arguing over tariffs in the late 19th century would have been the same as arguing about income tax rates today because they didn't have an income tax at the time. So this was the source of all, not all federal revenue, but pretty close to all. It was the major source of federal revenue. There was also some from excise taxes on liquor and things like that. But Cleveland is a is a low tariff man, not a free trader under the modern understanding, but closer to that than the opposite, wants to lower tariffs. Interestingly, wants to lower them on a rationale that is also completely foreign to us today. He thinks the populist position is actually lowering tariffs. And the reason that he thinks that is he sees tariffs oftentimes as a product of government business collusion, that the places that are getting the tariff protection are the places that are doing the most effective lobbying. And of course, the cost of the tariffs is coming out of the pocket of the, the everyday American consumer. So this is a focus of both of his administrations. And in his first term, he basically builds his entire reelection campaign around this, including something that had never been done up to that point, taking what was that era's equivalent of the State of the Union address. Back then it was written, and it was just called the President's Annual Message. But then as now, it tended to be just a grab bag of priorities, and he makes the whole thing about tariff reform and then runs his entire reelection campaign on tariff reform. This is how much he cares about this. This is how wed he is to this principle. And it's also a big reason that he loses re-election because he picks an issue that divides his own party. And it's also part of the reason that he gets returned to office in 1892, because in the interim, Republicans have increased tariff rates. Americans are really feeling the sting of it. And now the stuff that looked out of step five years prior, all of a sudden, he's a visionary. And then in his second term, once they finally advance tariff reform through the Congress, he gets the tariff reductions that he wanted, sort of. Uh, he doesn't get them reduced nearly as much as he wants. And because it's moved through Congress and all the political horse trading that comes with that, there are lots of carve outs for special interests. Any other politician in this case calls it a day, declares victory even when he only got half a loaf and tries to sort of unite the party around, hey, we did it. He threatens to veto his own bill <laughs> because he is so disappointed with what has happened. He is so frustrated. The Democratic Party is not living up to his ideals on this. He's eventually talked out of that, but even still, it passes into law without his signature. He, and he almost, because he throws such a fit over this, he almost blows up the entire package. So that gives you a sense of the, the kind of impracticality that sometimes is woven around this. You can read his reaction to this package and completely understand where he's coming from. And you can also read it and say, 
my God, man, you're the president of the United States. You can't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. You know, take what you can get here. And this is a tension that just runs throughout his career. So you did a good job of characterizing just now his the period between his two terms. But from what I got in the book, his two terms are not super significantly different because it's still Grover Cleveland, but there is a stark difference. Can you tell us a little bit about how the two relate to each other and how they're different from one another? I think the times the times change and he changes a little bit, which is to say that his first term, which again is 1885 to 1889, is a little more, I don't want to use the word placid. I mean, there are, there are things going on, but the era is different insofar as, you know, he's engaged in this tariff fight. He's spending a lot of time on military pensions, which, again, sounds super exotic. But if you understand that military pensions in terms of their impact on the federal budget at the time would be the equivalent of like entitlement programs today, you sort of get a clearer sense of it. But his first term, both in terms of the issues he's presented with and in terms of the way that he's conducting himself in office, it's a he has a very um, restrained, very limited understanding of the presidency. He takes, um, he takes the word, he takes the verb preside in president very seriously. You know, he is not trying to take the whip hand with Congress. He's sort of thinking himself as kind of an ombudsman in chief. And, uh, but he's quite aggressive in using the powers associated with that, by which I mean most specifically, he issues 414 vetoes in his first term, which is more than double the number of all presidents prior to him combined. I mean, this is sort of a revolution in the way that the, the veto is used, but pretty representative of that first term. It's Cleveland as sort of the nation's goalie, you know, just trying to keep the puck out of the net, trying to keep bad things from happening. The second term is a little different. And the second term is a little different for a few reasons. Uh, one is that the country is significantly more combustible in his second term. So there's a couple of reasons for this. You have the biggest economic downturn that the country has seen up to that point. We now call it the Panic of 1893, but at the time they called it the Great Depression. That was the severity with which it hit sort of late 19th century America. And again, a, a, a crisis that is sort of flows from a controversy that we have almost no touchstone for now because this is really about the prevalence of gold versus silver and the, the monetary supply. But you've got that. The country sort of really at loose ends over this and also the huge labor uprisings, most notably the Pullman strike in Chicago, which sort of mushrooms out of control to the point where there's significant parts of the country where commerce is starting to be shut down. And so partially because the issues are different, and partially because Cleveland had taken some losses in his first term by virtue of being a little bit more restrained in the way that he handled presidential power. He's a little bit more aggressive in that second term. So he's a little bit more aggressive in intervening on economic issues and trying to figure out how to pull the country out of this spiral in the Depression. He's considerably more aggressive when it comes to things like the Pullman strike. I mean, eventually to restore order, he puts federal troops into Chicago over the objections of the Democratic governor of Illinois. And this is a big thing for a Democrat in the late 19th century, in the shadow of the Civil War, to say, I am sending federal troops in over the objections that are rooted in state sovereignty. You know, that really makes Democrats of that era mad. So that's that's really the difference, is that 
as a combination of both disposition and the situation, the kind of issues that he was faced with. He is he's a little bit more aggressive in that second term. And and also because of some of these decisions he's making, he's becoming less and less popular in, in his party. So by the time he leaves office, he's really actually fallen out of favor with his fellow Democrats. So, I mean, this has kind of been the running theme of this conversation and also of the book itself is that Grover Cleveland is significantly different from many Democrats, if not almost all of them. Um, as you said, the he was the last of the Jeffersonian Democrats. Mm. Um I mean, to me, at the time, there's no way he was as forgotten as he is now. So what changed between him and Woodrow Wilson, and what was his impact on American politics and American life? It's kind of a big question. Yeah, so let me me split it up into some of the component pieces, because you were entirely right that he was not Uh, He was not regarded as an inconsequential president at the time, nor was he regarded as an inconsequential president in the sort of generation or two after his death. He dies in 1908. And uh, I quote in the book that in the in the mid 40s, one of the Arthur Schlesinger polls, which are kind of the forerunners to our our modern presidential rankings polls, uh, ranks Cleveland as the I think the eighth greatest president of all time, puts in between John Adams and, and Teddy Roosevelt. And that wasn't some idiosyncratic work of of this poll. Um, he was sort of held in that kind of esteem uh, in general. I mean, you could read these sort of fawning recollections of him by people like Mark Twain, you know, who generally didn't care that much for politicians. But you know, Twain refers to him as, you know, one of a one of the great American statesmen uh, in the 20s when the Treasury Department is designing what we now think of as sort of the modern American currency. The original proposals put Grover Cleveland on the $20 bill. He ends up getting switched with Andrew Jackson and going on the $1,000 bill. But no, he was he was remembered quite fondly uh, in the immediate aftermath of his presidency. But the tension, the reason that he is sort of drummed out, his memory is sort of drummed out of the institutional history of the Democratic Party, starts with the developments of his second term, and even a little before his second term in the, the years before, which is there is this fracture that is happening in the Democratic Party. And I don't want to draw the analogy too closely, but it's not entirely dissimilar from what's happening in the Republican Party over the last five or six years, which is to say that Cleveland represents this sort of limited government classical liberal tradition. And at the same time, there is this burgeoning populist sensibility within the Democratic Party that has much more interest in uh, a much more active government, uh, government intervention on economic issues, government support for labor, things like that. And Cleveland's great antagonist on this front is William Jennings Bryan. And Bryan winds up becoming the Democratic Party's presidential nominee uh, after Cleveland leaves in 1896. Brian loses. He's nominated again in 1900, and he loses. And he comes back a third time in 1908, and of course, he loses a third time. But the Democratic Party is not really deterred by this. I mean, the the one other nominee that they have in the interim, a totally forgotten presidential candidate from 1904 by the name of Alton Parker, is a little bit more Cleveland-esque. But uh, that's the last time that they sort of go back to that well. And then by 1912, you get Wilson who has this sort of progressive spin on it, and they never look back. And it's sort of interesting when you look at the political upheavals that are going on at that time, 
by the time that Cleveland uh, dies, William Howard Taft is coming in as president. And Taft, who's a Republican, looks much more ideologically like Cleveland than any of the Democrats do. And by the time you get around to the 1920s and figures like Warren Harding and Calvin Coolidge, that sort of limited government sensibility uh, has pretty much migrated to the Republican Party. It's not that there aren't vestiges left of it in the Democrats, but you don't really see it in any of the, the big figures at the national level. And so because the politics around it are kind of confused, and we all have a recency bias on this stuff, and we all think about it in terms of the, the modern context – you know, he wasn't a Republican, so he doesn't get elevated in the Republican pantheon. And the Democrats, modern Democrats, don't really see a whole lot in him that they admire because he's now a more conservative figure. And he just sort of gets lost in the shuffle for that reason and, and for all the ones that I identified earlier, which is there was just never a concentrated effort on his behalf or really the behalf of any of his associates to what we would now call legacy build, you know, to, to really um, – try and give him uh, an enduring legacy. He just, he wasn't that interested in it. He, he just didn't think that it, he had done the work and that was it. And he didn't need to memorialize it. There will be no Grover Cleveland monument, sadly. <laughs> um, I would like to see that, but it would also be a little ironic, I think, given his entire presidency. Um, yes, so that's right. What can politicians learn from Grover Cleveland's career? It's a very good question. And obviously, a lot has changed in the interim, right? Like a lot has changed in American politics in the years since Cleveland was president. I mean, one of the points that I'm always uh, keen to make is that uh, Cleveland now gets invoked in a way that he hasn't for a long time because of Donald Trump, because there's this Donald Trump is making this effort to replicate what Cleveland did and, and get restored to office. And uh, I always point out that the contrast between them is really striking on this front, more than the similarities, because uh, Cleveland actually was restored to office by antagonizing his own base, a thing that wouldn't happen today because he comes out in the interim between his two presidencies and denounces the sort of growing populist movement for silver in the in the country's money supply, which really all you need to know there is he is he is denouncing an effort to ease people's debt burdens through inflation. That that's really his his core objection there. And he's opposing a position that is in the saddle in his party. Uh, and the only reason that works is because going up to the 1892 presidential election, he doesn't have to worry about any such thing as a base because there are no primary elections. Right. He gets chosen by the party elders in the Democratic Party who look at him and think, OK, he's kind of been a, a pain in our rear for years, but he at least seems like he's not going to blow up the American economy, as opposed to today when a president who wants to get restored to office, the obvious thing you have to do is how you get presidential nominations. You play to the base. So there are institutional changes, I think, in American politics that make it harder to get a figure like this. That being said, I do think that there is something that today's politicians can learn from Cleveland. Um, there's a passage in the afterword of my book that is is very interesting because Grover Cleveland is not a particularly introspective person. He doesn't tell you what's happening in his brain a lot. He will describe events to you, but he's not that inward looking. And there's an account from one of his friends uh, late in his life where they're talking about what we would now call a, a hack politician, the name of whom is, is not identified. 
And Cleveland says, you know, the problem with that kind of fellow is he thinks there's no political power in a moral idea. And that, I think, is really central to understanding Grover Cleveland. There's another passage nearby in the book where he tells another friend, everybody talks about the importance of playing politics. I never did it. And look how far I got. So there is there is this. I mean, and the reason this is interesting is because it tells you that he did at least understand the strategic implications of his first principles, which is that they helped him. And I think they still can help politicians because I think Cleveland is fundamentally right about this. I think that while there may be short term costs embedded in standing on principle, the accumulation of that over time, people's perception that you actually can't be swayed by whatever breeze is going by, that there is sort of a core conviction to you, is the thing that can make you stand out in politics. And I think a thing that can make you stand out in politics even more today when it seems scarcer than ever. So I do think that that's a lesson from Cleveland's life that modern politicians could apply. I just don't know how many of them have the patience to apply it because that is a long-term project. And then what can we, Americans, voters, learn from Cleveland's presidency? And what can we take away from it, especially as I'm certain that when politicians are responding to essentially the demand of voters, the preferences or at least perceived preferences of voters, we play kind of an important role in shaping what we expect out of a president. Yeah, that's totally right. That's totally right. I mean, I, I sometimes think of the electorate the same way that, you, you know, you think you think of a friend who's consistently making poor choices when it comes to their romantic life, right? You're, you're, you're getting a lot of what you're giving, right? You are sending signals out into the universe about what you want, and you really need to think about the consequences of those signals or you will end up being disappointed. And so I think you're right. I mean, America has such a little d democratic sensibility that uh, the, people are always hesitant to criticize the voters, which is a little strange, right? Because there was such a huge mass of people, some of them, just as a statistical matter, some of them are making mistakes. So it seems a little weird to inoculate them from, from criticism. And the gentle criticism that I would offer is that just as politicians need to be doing more long-term thinking, so do voters, Right. You we oftentimes elect presidents or senators or congressmen or governors or mayors, you know, whoever's on your ballot. It's amazing how much when you watch elections play out, they turn on the events that happen right before the election. Right. You see that you see this a lot. You can learn a lot about what the outcome of an election is going to be by figuring out what's in the news cycle for the two weeks prior to it. And you sort of get that. Again, there's a recency bias, but it's not a great way to make political judgments. It's not a great way to make decisions of that kind of import. You got to be thinking about a person that is going to be in office for, you know, depending on the job, two, four, six years. The vast majority of issues they face are not going to be ones that you have considered when you cast a ballot for them. So this is why at some essential level, I don't think you can ever fully discount character as a factor when you're voting for elected officials, because you don't know most of what they're going to be dealing with. So you really, if you know that the person in question has these kind of core convictions, has this unshakability, has a sense of integrity, um, it goes a long way. So that that's a long-winded way of saying that we should, we're probably not going to see another Grover Cleveland anytime soon, but we should at least be looking for people who model some of those same behaviors. 
I wish we had more time to keep talking about this. Uh, but I have one last question. For, sure. Well, two last questions for you, but one last not built in. Whatever. Um, <laughs> so, Key and Kite Media. My mom's a big fan, as I told you earlier, and she always is sending me these videos, and we're both surprised and pleased to find out that you're involved. So can you tell <laughs> us about that project? Yes, Kite and Key Media is a company that uh, myself and a woman named Vanessa Mendoza co-founded uh, about three years ago. We've Our work's only been public for about two years, and it comes out of our mutual experience in the world of think tanks. And we both love think tanks. We both love the the universe of policy research. But we both grew frustrated, uh, not with the think tanks themselves, but with the intellectual environment that grew up around them, which is to say that when you work at a think tank, a good day is, you know, a scholar gets published in a in a big publication like the Wall Street Journal, or, or a scholar has a, a great meeting with an elected official and convinces them, you know, on a, on a policy idea that they think they should implement, all of which is super important work. Um, but when it comes to sort of the broader public, what we found is you'd go home to normal people, like friends and family who weren't obsessed with public policy, and they would think that they knew something about these issues, but almost all of what they thought they knew, they had sort of gotten in dribs and drabs on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram, often from pretty unreliable sources. You know, nobody nobody usually bothers to fact check tweets or or Facebook posts. At least normal people don't. And so our idea was, well, what if you took the kind of material that is coming out of research institutions, think tanks, uh, universities, government entities, and took the five percent or so of that work that sort of everyday people need to know about and sort of packaged it in a fun, loose, kind of creative way so that people could have you know, access to this kind of like serious research and, and reliable facts, but in a way that felt light and breezy and accessible. And so that's what we do. And we put out videos on a, a range of mostly public policy issues, but other sort of related stuff. So we do stuff on economics, science, and energy and uh, sort of quality of life, like crime issues. We even do some stuff on psychology. And um, that's the idea behind Kite and Key. So people are interested. They can find uh, Kite and Key Media on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, LinkedIn, or at our website, which is uh, kiteandkeymedia.com. Definitely go check it out, everyone. Um, I wish we had more time again, but I have one last question for you. Sure. Actually, this time. Uh, what is one thing that you believed at one time in your life that you later changed your position on and why? It's a really good question. Um, the answer I'm going to give you is less, I mean, it is a specific belief, but it's also, it's more of a disposition, which is to say that when you're, when you're young, particularly if you're interested in, in, politics and, and policy, although I think this applies to a lot of other areas too. But when you are young, I think there is a tendency to try to find the capital C, capital A, correct answer to everything. I think this is why young people tend to be, um, on average, a little bit more ideological than slightly older people. Is You, you sort of want a, a, a core text or sort of a core understanding of the world that for any question, I can reference this and I know what the correct answer is. 
And uh, it's just an understandable bias of being young that you sort of want to do all of this rationally because you can't do it empirically. You haven't had enough time and enough experience. So you just kind of want to be able to figure out first principles and go from there. And it's an important exercise, actually, pinning down your first principles. But the thing I think I've changed on as I've gotten older and this sort of directly relates to what we were talking about with the, the Grover Cleveland stuff. And it's one of the reasons I'm a little critical of, of Cleveland on this front. I think most people, the older they get, get a little bit more, uh, I might say, Burkean on this front, which is to say that you become a lot more comfortable with half measures, with partial victories, not because they're morally satisfying. They're not in the same way that a total, you know, overhaul of the system in the way that you'd like would be, but because they're doable. Because oftentimes the real choices, the real binaries that you're faced with are half of what you want or none of what you want. And all of what you want is never on the menu. And I think the older you get, the more you are, are willing to make those trade-offs. So it, I, I don't think you can accelerate that process. I think it's actually probably fairly normal that the, the younger you are, the, the more you are um, trying to think about this stuff in a maybe slightly more all-encompassing way. But I do think that it's um, the earlier that somebody can get in their brain, the idea that, look, in a, in a democratic system, um, compromise is always a, a part of how anything's going to function. And the actually really interesting and really hard questions are where and how do you compromise? And when is a compromise conceding too much? And how do you weigh the trade-offs? And that, that's really where you find statesmanship. I, and I think that's sort of the highest level of political analysis. So that that's that's the answer that I would give. It's just that kind of change in disposition you get as as you think about things, you know, with a little more experience under your belt. Once again, I'd like to thank my guests for their time and insight. And I'd like to thank you for listening to The Great Antidote podcast. The Great Antidote is sound engineered by Rich Goyette. If you have any questions, any guests or topic recommendations, please feel free to reach out to me at thegreatantidote at gmail.com. Thank you.